Hey y'all, this is a preview to the latest premium subscriber only episode to Champagne Sharks. So what you're hearing is a small clip of a longer episode that is available over on patreon.com forward slash Champagne Sharks. And it's available to premium subscribers who pay $5 a month. And if you want to hear the rest of the episode, go over to patreon.com forward slash Champagne Sharks and subscribe for only $5 a month. You get not only access to this episode in its entirety, but to the whole backlog of premium episodes, which at this point is over 100 episodes at this point. So it's a great deal. So without further ado, here is the preview. And I hope we see you on the other side at patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks, where you can hear the rest. You know, something that I found that's kind of interesting is, and these things go through waves, but, you know, there's a lot of uh, kind of oppression Olympics that happen within oppressed groups. And like one thing I remember was in like the 90s and the 2000s, there was this big thing where people kind of uh, were saying in the black community that black men uh, were kind of having having it better because they were being I guess, seen more desirable as interracial dating partners, or they were kind of getting more media opportunities, you know, athletics and rapping and stuff like that. Uh, People like Eddie Murphy and Dave Chappelle and whatever was kind of like a black man's game. But um, there were a lot of black men who were kind of saying like, yeah, we're getting, we're getting picked, but there's a very narrow idea of what we can be. We have to be rappers. We have to be um, musicians. We have to be athletes. We have to act like quote unquote, uh, what people call ghetto or have like, like swag, like, you know, um, and I think these things kind of go in cycles. Like right now, if you're looking at a lot of the corporate world, or if you're looking at a lot of, a lot of the media, there is uh, a lot more space for um, black queer people and black women than there was. And some people now will even say, a lot of black men now will even say that it's very um, pro-queer or very pro-black women, like the, the, the media space, like the mainstream media space. But if you look at, to me, what they're asking a lot of these black queer writers and actors and stuff to do, or these black uh, female figures to do, it seems to me it's equally constricting as what uh, black men were doing when they were kind of more in vogue. You know, like as far as um, it's the aspect like RuPaul's Drag Race, it has to be something that's very into slave play slash race play it has to be there's a very narrow uh constrict constrictive things the black women are meant to be there as like kind of nurturing earth mothers like you know black women are going to save everybody there i call it kind of a, a, a neo-mammyism where uh they're like the political saviors of america you know and and i find like the work that you guys do very very good at finding the nuance in things. But I also kind of worry that, um, like, I think you guys get a good reception because you're not really trying to be public intellectuals. As far as I can see, your audience is the, um, your audience is the Academy, but I think if I'm wrong, uh, correct me. But yeah, I, I, I think a big problem is that the people who do want to be public intellectuals strip the nuance from things. I think because they kind of realize that uh, there's less of an audience for for nuance. And I was kind of wondering both of you, how you feel about the balance or the duty to kind of, if there is one, to take things out of the academy and make them uh, enter the mainstream. If, if that's, a, if that's even a desirable thing to do, um, if it's even possible to do, like if it even is possible to take uh, the kind of work that is done by you guys and take it into the mainstream and keep it nuanced. 
Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I like, I, I definitely think it's a worthwhile pursuit to try and be as mainstream as possible. I think, you know, like what good is any of this research if it just stays in the academy where it can't be used to like influence policy and, um, and public thought, you but know, can it, but can it survive in the mainstream in a nuanced way? That's yeah, my mean, worry. I don't know. I mean, I think, I think it, it's weird. I mean, like the, the advent of like, of social media lends itself to like short, punchy, you know, um, short, punchy titles and, and sound bits, sound bites. And it, it doesn't necessarily lend itself to anything longer than like 160 characters or what, you know, or whatever, like the current limit is on, on Twitter. So, yeah, so I don't know. I think, I think if you're going to be a public intellectual, there is, there is always, I mean, essentially like one requirement of that position is, is to sort of be like succinct and accessible and I do think that like what you're getting at is true, which is that um, the more sort of succinct and accessible you try to make your message, uh, the, the less that message, I think, tends to adhere to like what's, what's really going on in a nuanced kind of way. But that said, I mean, I do think that there are more ways, there are more responsible ways to be a public intellectual and there are less responsible ways to be a public intellectual. And I think social psychologists in particular have a really fantastic, um, I think they're well positioned to be public intellectuals because the questions that we study are important and they are accessible sort of just on their own. You know, we study human behavior and we study discrimination and we study the types of things that people want to know the answers to. Um, so I think I'm kind of rambling at this point, but generally speaking, no, 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 you're not, trust me, you're not generally speaking. I do think I'm optimistic about the potential for social psychologists to, to be public intellectuals who both, deliver important messages and, and can do it in a way that's nuanced. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I do think that it's, it's, it's tricky business. Yeah. Uh, Justin, do you have anything to um, weigh in on that? I mean, I agree with Christopher to the extent that I think that it is complicated. I think that there are bene- great benefits and great risk to the endeavor of public intellectualism. I think the thing that I tend to think about a lot, especially as it relates to the scholarship of, of scholars of color, and particularly black scholars, is really about the ways in which returning to the intersectional and invisibility thing, that if you're not very careful, your work can take on and can be used in ways that you did not intend. And so I think what is always at stake there is the, is the importance of a particular proprietary nature around the research that you do, particularly as it relates to not so much constraining people's interpretation of it, but being very clear about what the limitations of the work are, what you are actually talking about, and how far people can stretch your data to make claims about other things that are only tangentially related. The difference is that once you put your work out there, people start making connections that you either did not intend, which can sometimes be fine, but sometimes are also erroneous or dangerous or vastly misrepresent the work in these really important ways. And then the field as a whole and the scholar as a whole then has to do all the hard work of attempting to essentially reclaim the narrative around the work. This again has happened with Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw, who I actually think has been a very successful public intellectual, but has done quite a lot of her own academic and public work in really trying to reorient people to what intersectionality really is and to the Black feminist history behind intersectionality that we love to skip over when we when we cite it on Twitter, right? And so I and think- she's, so- And she's very active in correcting uh, the- flattening and mistakes that right. and I think that is, do. And, and I think you have to have a particular personality for that because the other piece about it, about the, when we talk about the constraining of things, right? When we think about exceptional exemplars, I can understand people positioning someone, whether she wants it or not, someone like Kimberly Crenshaw as an exemplar, you know, of, you know, in terms of 
what it means to be a black woman in the United States as far as it relates to success and, and to impact and that kind of thing. But we also have to then consider, as we always do with, with public intellectualism and with black public intellectuals in particular, the particular kind of work and the particular kind of effort and the particular kind of constraining that that has, because you have to maintain a particular kind of vigilance that almost all people of color, and particularly black Americans, have to maintain as it relates to how your work is being used, how your body is being used, how your intellectual scholarship is being used. And that in and of itself is a racist paradigm that we have to engage with. And so I think for me, that is always the challenge of public intellectual work. You know, I was quite frankly nervous to accept the invitation to be on the podcast for that same reason in thinking about will persons take the work that I am doing, strip it of its nuance, put it up on Twitter somewhere, and there's a whole firestorm conversation happening about something I didn't actually see. You know, and then I also am wary too about the interaction in public intellectualism in the marketplace of ideas about this particular racist way in which white scholars get a lot of credit for the ideas that black scholars have always been talking about. And so I, I try to engage that idea as well too. And so I think that like Christopher, I am optimistic, but I'm significantly more cautiously so. Because I think if you're a person of color within the academy, as a public intellectual, a lot more is at stake. Because white intellectuals are allowed to exist in their ideas separate from their racial category. One of the one of the one of the one of the, the burdens of being a person of color is that your stance on the work is often taken as a definitive description of the phenomenon within the black community or within whatever particular ethnic community or, or sexual orientation group or whatever particular identity position you belong to. And that is often dangerous because it flattens actual dynamic, useful conversations, schisms, you know, co- you know sometimes outright um, battle camp divisions that sometimes are really what pushes real conversation forward. And so I think for me, those are the things I try to keep in mind as I wonder about what public intellectualism can look like and how you would do it safely. I, I think what you said there about when you're Black, is hard to separate in the mind of people, like your race from what you're saying. I think it's a perfect example of your um, the one in front of the X thing that you talked about before, which I'm totally going to steal uh, in the future. I like it too. You know. I'm, I'm going to use it too. Yeah, I'll, I love it. I'll credit you. As long as you're, as you're citing. This is fine, but I'm, I mean, I'm happy to share it. It's not a, it's not a new idea. It's just one that I think is useful to explain the phenomenon. It's a, it's a great metaphor. Yeah. I like it too. Yeah. Uh, I I do have bad news for you though. Um, We're approaching the end of the interview, but this is going to cut down to a half hour and I'm totally going to do what you said, Justin. I'm totally going to make sound bites and put you all out of context and the firestorm is coming. We're going to cut this down to a quarter of its length and soundbite it. No, no, I'm, I'm just playing. I'm just playing. It's going to be, it's going to be in its entirety. All the nuance and context will be uh, there, but, um, but it will be, it will actually be shorter though, right? <laughs> um, no, actually, no, we just go long. We, we let all the nuance in there. I mean, we cut out like uh, spaces and stuff like that, but uh, we have a very uh, patient, a nuanced audience. You'd be you'd be surprised. They'll they'll digest all this. Uh, fine. Y- yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah. I, so you don't have to worry about that, Justin. I, I was just joking. It's it's all going to be there. And um, what I wanted to ask is my last question, and then give you guys a chance to post things to uh each other. I want to ask. There's there's two examples I thought of, and I want to ask if you guys had any uh stories or ideas about either of them. Um. One was, I was wondering, because I know some people like this. Um, I had a friend when I was growing up, he uh, went to jail. He was a um, real stereotypical, kind of kind of the racist hate stereotype of a, of a black man. Like, you know, he was 
into the street life. He presented as like the black straight male um, stereotype, uh, you know, uh, into like he was what like people would call it, call it like a thug back in the day, or whatever. And he, anyway, he went to he went to jail. And then when he went to jail, um, he started a gay relationship in jail and then he just came out uh, and he just identified as gay. He did not even identify as um, bisexual. I was always fascinated by his experience that he never stopped presenting in that um, kind of way. As far as like when white people see him, they would think of him as all those negative uh, stereotypes. And I was wondering if any of you know any information or studies or have done anything where somebody presents in the typical black straight male way but is known to be gay what what difference like like that makes if you don't actually um present in ways that people see as stereotypically um black and gay that's interesting i i mean my so i don't know of any work on this particular question of like what happens when you separate a person how a person um presents from a person's identity uh but when- I mean, I mean, once they know he's gay, like, like say someone like that says, by the way, uh, I'm gay. Like, I was wondering how that cognitive dissonance uh, works. Like, like not if the person doesn't say they're gay. I, I, well, I guess what I was going to say is like, I think, I think you, people treat you how they perceive you. And if their default assumption based on how you carry yourself is that you're not something, but they're not going to treat you as that something. Um, but then, then of course, as you're saying, like when you disclose that you are that something, that, that this can then influence the way that people treat you. But I mean, I think perception is a huge part of the story, right? Like people treat you how they see you. All right. So that was a preview. If you like what you hear and you want to hear the rest of the episode and a hundred more episodes, then by all means, go over to patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks. Take care, y'all.